Welcome to the Draw Shops Get Genius Podcast, where we talk to today's business influencers to pick their brain and pull out their genius. It's time to get genius. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today, I have a crazy cool interview for you. I'm talking to Christos Shepard, and he's a guy who's doing something pretty amazing with an app called Campfire. I'm going to tell you what it's all about. Even uh, also as super cool is that he's started airlines and has helped governments and entrepreneurs in Africa to start airlines. This all happened when he was uh, fresh out of undergrad and he started and later sold a Greek airline. And then after that, he did a stint at JetBlue, which we'll talk about on the show. And he created uh, or helped to launch Mint, which is America's first ever live flat experience. That's a little bit of his background. He's had a TV show in China. He writes for The Economist. He does all kinds of crazy cool things. And um, he's the co-founder now of a company called Campfire. And what this is, is a revolutionary audio app that pays users to ask great questions to their favorite experts, celebrities, and podcasters. So, um, you know, it's all about sharing. You can share stories and you can get answers to your burning questions of maybe it's Selena Gomez. I don't know. Maybe it's a famous YouTuber that you want to know something about. And you ask the question, they answer you back, audio version, and then you get paid, they get paid, and then you can either keep your money or donate a percentage or all of your money to your favorite charities. So for example, there's, you know, We've, we've had the hurricanes happening. I don't when, know when you're listening to this, but we're recording this in September. And so we've had uh, the hurricanes that are, that are going on and people are donating a lot of their money towards hurricane relief. So that is something that you could do. And it's just really, really great. And beyond what the app does, we talk about social media and how can it be used for more positive experiences, you know, how can we turn social media into something that does social good? And, uh, he's, he's brilliant in, in all of his opinions and insight. And I love speaking with him. Um, we talk about a lot of other things as well in terms of company culture, um, raising money for an app. So many of us have app ideas, uh, how do you get started? How do you market them? Uh, how do you raise money for them? And what point should you start raising money? So a lot of a lot of great uh, things that we cover here. And he's just a, a great guy, and you're going to love listening to him. He's got a great British accent, which I love. And um, I really hope you enjoy this. So have a listen, and uh, please please review if you if you like the interview. Thanks. Hello, Christos, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Summer. I've been waiting to to be on this show and get genius for such a long time, and and now I'm finally here. Thank it's you so much. Finally for having happening. Me. Yes, thank you. I'm I'm really excited because you um you've got some really unique things that we are going to be discussing. So I I love it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go right into it. I would love for our audience to hear because you have such a really cool background. Um, you know, kind of the, the brief highlighted version of what you've, what you've done and how you got to what you're doing today. 
about me. Wow, yes. my favorite topic. I get to talk about myself. <laughs> Great. Um, well, thanks, Summer. I uh, I don't know. I I consider myself to be an entrepreneur. I think first and foremost. Yes. Um, and that journey began for me when I graduated from undergrad. I, I left. I was a history major, so I knew really nothing about the real world. But nevertheless, I went off and I started a small airline in Greece with the support of some some terrific people that I managed to persuade to join me on that journey. And um, you know, after some several years of hard work, we got that airline off the ground, which was wonderful. I ended up uh, selling it a few years later, and after that, I went to go and help. Um, other people, governments, and entrepreneurs to start airlines of their own in different parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And that was really probably one of the most challenging times of my life. Real fun in places like Ghana, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, etc. Great fun. Um, I then did a, a quick stint at JetBlue. Um, God, I feel like I'm in a job interview right now. I'm, I know. <laughs> I was at JetBlue for a bit. That was kind of fun. Um, I worked with the team there on um, launching the the Mint product, which is America's first ever um, lie flat seat in in domestic airspace, which was a really really fun experience. I really enjoyed that company. Great people there. Terrific culture, um, and a lot of lessons I think about building company culture uh, that could apply to to organizations right the way across this country. In fact, across the world. Yeah, I um I got an MBA at Stanford, wrote for the Economist for a little bit, which was good fun. Um, and now I am the co-founder of Campfire, which is um a mobile app for, for for iOS that pays people to ask good questions to their favorite experts, celebrities, even podcasters. So um, and that's that's consuming my life right now. So uh, yeah, I'm that's me in a nutshell, I guess. Well, there's so many, so many things that we're going to talk about. I first, of course, have to ask how, how do you even go about starting an airline? That just seems just so like, what? And, and how, you know, what made you even think I'm going to start an airline? Well, starting an airline is very, very hard. Um, it's hard just I, thinking about. <laughs> I came well. I mean, I came up with the concept because I, you know, I was young and stupid, didn't really know what I was doing. I said I was a history major. Um, I was marooned on a on on the island of Mykonos in Greece with my really really hot Greek girlfriend at the time. We were in undergrad <laughs> together, and uh, the winds were blowing really strongly. We couldn't get off the island, which of course is no real disaster when you're 21 years old and you want to spend as much time as you possibly can with your hot Greek girlfriend. Right. But when we did eventually leave, you know, it was, it was a horrible experience. There's a we got on this massive ferry. The boat was listing from side to side. It took five hours to go 100 miles. People were vomiting around me everywhere. It's just oh. horrible, horrible. Um, and I happened to see, a couple of days later, I happened to see um, a, uh, a movie. It was a Harrison Ford movie, um, which had a seaplane in it. And I was like, I remember turning to my girlfriend and saying, like, why don't they have seaplanes in, in Greece? And, and that was kind of how the idea for Air Thalysser was born. So it was a, a, we had a small fleet of, of seaplanes that were connecting people um, between the different Greek islands. I would say the biggest challenge, how do you start an airline, is really overcoming the challenges that are thrown in your path by regulators and in, in Greece also some of, the, some, of, some of the government ministries as well got involved. Um, and a lot of the regulations around aviation are, of course, um, eminently sensible. They are, you know, predicated on passenger safety and, you know, making sure that people have a, have a safe and comfortable experience, etc. 
Um, but, you know, nevertheless, there are there's a tremendous amount of paperwork, a lot of work to do. And it was only really by surrounding myself with really smart, knowledgeable people, people considerably older, wiser, more experienced than than I was, um, that I was that we were able to to, to, to to get the airline off the ground. Um, that's how that happened, I guess. It was a very instructive um, experience for me. Of course, it really catalyzed my my um, belief in entrepreneurship and my my faith in my own ability to actually build companies. Yeah. And it ultimately led me to where I am today, starting Campfire. So let's talk about Campfire and, and what it is and why does it matter? Wow. <laughs> Big questions. Yeah. Um, well, Campfire, first of all, is, is a mobile app for iOS and Android is coming soon. And as I said before, it's an audio based platform where you or anybody can ask your burning questions to your favorite experts or thought leaders or celebrities, the sorts of people you can't normally reach out to. You can't pick up the phone and call them because they're too famous or they're on the other side of the world or whatever. Right. When you when you ask your burning questions, they will answer you directly with personalized audio messages. So it's just this immediate Q&A exchange. But the interesting part to me is not really about the Q&A. It's this. If you ask a really good question, meaning a question that gets other people to listen to the answer, then you get paid real money. And you can donate if you want to. You can donate some or all of that money to whichever charity you support. So let's say, Summer, I'm your biggest fan. I can ask you a question. You'll answer me with a, a short audio message that's sent directly to my phone. Okay. But if other people, your, you know, your other listeners, for example, in this case, um, want to eavesdrop, want to listen in on that answer that you've recorded for me, I will get paid. And so will you, of course, the person who answered. But I also get paid as the person who asked. And the reason why this is important, this simple trick almost as important, is that it incentivizes people to ask good questions. Because if I ask a good question, I'm going to get paid. And so I need to, I need to you know, think about interesting things to ask you. I need to make sure that you're likely to respond to me. Because if I send you some hateful trolling comment that's rude and sweary, you're not going to answer. Um, and it also rewards me for for sort of instigating high quality content over the lowbrow nonsense that you get on Twitter or some of the other social media networks that I, I won't mention. So that's kind of at its core. What we're trying to do is to, you know, remove some of the vacuousness, um, the, the filters and the smizing and the follow me back. Um, of social media and replace it with, you know, some more meaningful dialogue, dialogue that actually matters to people and to their lives. Right. So how, how do you, how do you, how did you get out this, the word of campfire? What were your marketing techniques and ways to get people interested involved? Because what it is alone is like, that's awesome. Like I want, I want to be a part of it. How did you get people to, to see what you were doing? Um, wow, it's a great question. Uh, well, first of all, we're still in early days. So, you know, we, we only went into the App Store about um, two months ago. Right. Now. Um, so, you know, our marketing efforts are still embryonic. Yeah. Nevertheless, like we relied a lot on our personal networks to to, uh, you know, to, to get the introductions that we needed to celebrities, thought leaders and experts who might, you know, 
um, attract interest from from their own follower bases and from a wider audience. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what we did. We just went through our, our personal networks, spoke to people, um, you know, in Hollywood, of course, uh, you know, in other parts of the world. Um, you know, we've spoken to people from Bollywood, for example, uh, in India, Nollywood in Nigeria. Yeah. Um, spoken to EPL, English Premier League soccer players, for example, um, about coming and joining the platform. In addition to, you know, your more kind of conventional, run-of-the-mill American celebrities. Um, so we're trying to build, you know, a very much a global conversation and generate some buzz around the platform when we do so. So what are you? What are you seeing in social media that? makes it more of a negative people a negative experience for some people and and what is it that creates a more positive experience that's a great question i mean i can only really speak for myself yeah i'd say there are two things that disappoint me not just about social media specifically but about sort of the internet and tech in general and the first is it it, it i feel unhappy when i go on social media either because people are just being outwardly rude and obnoxious they're saying horrible things to each other being cruel to each other etc or alternatively other people just seem to be living more fabulous lives than i am and i feel bad <laughs> their bodies look better than mine like their holidays are sunnier than mine i mean instagram to be honest is very much responsible for this i think because literally you are looking at the life of somebody else with a filter placed over the top is you're literally filtering somebody's life <laughs> yeah. literally and so you have this unreal you have this unreal view of what other people are doing and of course your life can, it can never live up by comparison to the highlights of somebody else's the highlighted filtered version of somebody else's life and so you end up feeling sad that's the first thing that I think makes me feel disappointed about the way social media is today. The second thing is is more about the internet more broadly. And I mentioned before, um, you know, that I was I was in Stanford for two years doing an MBA. So I was in, in Silicon Valley. I very quickly grew fed up of the incremental innovations that come out of Silicon Valley, the incremental innovations that meet the needs of a tiny band of, to be honest, mostly white, middle-aged, rich users. Um, you know, these are, I was in, in San Francisco the other day and I passed a billboard that was for, it was advertising a new app that helps you to figure out where in the neighborhood your dog could go to take a shit. That was <laughs> the app. It's like, I don't need that app. I've, you know, like I've said before, like I've, I've been in Sierra Leone and, and places where people don't even have water to drink. Right. There was, there was a mudslide recently, hardly covered by the American media. Uh, a mudslide in, in Freetown after some heavy rains that killed, I think, 800 people or something like that. And wow. these are problems that the people in Silicon Valley are equipped to solve because people in Silicon Valley are rich. They are very well educated. They're very worldly. And they have access to all the technology and resources that they need to actually start addressing some of these serious global problems that affect not just the lives of people in Freetown, Sierra Leone, but also in, you know, Flint, Michigan. Um, uh, but they're not addressing those problems. They're addressing these, as I say, these sort of like these pointless problems that aren't even really problems. And so I think, you know, my feelings about the internet and about, you know, the, the way that we behave and interact with each other online very much um, uh, sort of follow those two things that I just said. And, and through Campfire, I hope that in a small way, we are able to change some of that by rewarding all of the users of Campfire financially 
that that we reward high quality content over the lowbrow that I mentioned before. And most importantly, that we're actually generating through the platform revenue for good causes. Right. Uh, not, not just any old good causes, but the, the causes that our users specifically care about the most. Because as I said, um, you know, people who earn money on the platform can donate some or all of it to whichever charity they specifically choose to support. So it could be Planned Parenthood, could be water.org, it could be, you know, your kid's school, um, you know, whatever you want it to be. I love that. I really, I really do. And I, I appreciate that you're doing this. I, I agree. There's, there's a lot of people with, you know, some, with apps, everybody has an app idea. What, in your opinion, of course, how do you, how do you really gauge whether it's going to be something that's going to have a long lifespan? And if it's something that, you know, something like campfire really does matter i mean there's there's substance there and it has this it can can have has the potential to have this amazing huge impact how do you determine whether your app is is going to have that and whether it's worth investing or raising money for it oh i mean there's 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 no answer to that question i mean if i had the answer to that question i'd be an investor i just you know i'd go and i it's it's impossible to tell the future, particularly when it comes to to consumer products like apps. Uh, it's very hard to know, you know, if consumers are going to buy something a priori. You can't figure it out in advance. All you can do is just say to yourself, like, screw it, let's do it. We'll just give it a try and see if people enjoy the experience, if they enjoy the product. Um, and I'm really not being disingenuous when I say that. Like, really, when we first started Campfire, like, we didn't know if people would would actually use it or be interested in it. And as I say, it's still early days, um, but uh, you know we've we have users who are having a terrific experience, raising money for charity, earning money for themselves. Um, you know, and we're we're starting to get some of that traction. But you know, I, I couldn't have said for sure if we do that in advance. Well, I think you know what happens sometimes is people start something, they have this idea, and then they you know present it to a certain amount of users, and then all of a sudden they're getting feedback of something that they really really love about it that almost shifts your direction did you did you have that experience at all oh that happens a lot i mean i wouldn't say that happens so much with with campfire but i do know that for sure yes absolutely i mean stanford really preaches the methodology that you're talking about and i've actually there's a, an acronym for it i've forgotten what it is now but um sort of the lean startup methodology like just put a really basic threadbare bare bones product or service out there right see how people react and then in response to those reactions, those customer feedbacks that you're getting, like systematically collect those customer feedbacks. And when you get them, then iterate your product, change your product, change your service, you know, and gradually bit by bit, iteration by iteration, you'll you'll come up eventually with the perfect, you know, the perfect product. And the great thing about this methodology is, of course, you don't need to launch with, you know, everything. You just start start really small, start with the most basic service you've got. And, you know, you might launch a, I don't know, a brand of of uh, you might launch an app, for example, and you find that your customers want, you know, they like it, but they want to use it for something other than which you originally intended, in which case, yeah, pivot, definitely. Right. Respond to what your customers are telling you. What was your journey in creating Campfire? Did you first create the design and then go into development? Did you, like, what were the different things that you were testing out or you know, really putting your your money into and your efforts into before going to the next step. 
Um, it's a great question. I think, what did we do first? I, so for the, in the first place, what we had to do was really build the app, right? I mean, you, you know, we needed to have some kind of product to show to people, to demonstrate to people. Um, and since neither I nor my co-founder have any kind of technical expertise or building apps or anything like that, um, you know, we, we persuaded a couple of people to come in and, you know, begin an embryonic uh, engineering sort of department for us, a sort of tech department for us. They helped us to put together um, the actual initial products. And we worked, too, with with a designer, absolutely fantastic designer, Luke. He's still on our team. He's, he's absolutely amazing. Um, and, yeah, so as a small team, we, we managed to put together an MVP, a minimum viable product. Uh, that product we, we then went and tested with, with users, um, both people that we knew as well as just random people. We put together some focus groups and found out what people thought, made changes to the product in much the way that I explained before. And then once we felt comfortable that we had something that, uh, you know, that people would actually want to use, then we went to go and raise money from, um, from external investors uh, who, who chipped in for our seed round, which was terrific. That, you know, the seed round then gave us the, 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 the runway, the, 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 uh, the, the money, frankly, that we needed to then go off and, 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 and build out the product some more and make further iterations and, you know, eventually launch it publicly rather than having a beta version, which is what we had until then, launching it publicly in the App Store, which is where it is today. And, we, you know, we, we still iterate. Like every, say, every two days, we have a new version of the app that comes out slightly oh, sure. different yeah. based, on, based on what people are saying. Right, right. How, what advice do you have for people that are trying to raise money for, for an app? And um, is it better to raise money or to use your own? Oh, it's always better to use your own money. I mean, if you've got money and you believe in your product, use your own money. Right. If you use your own money, you don't have to give away any equity in your company. You don't have to give away any shares of your company. Um, but, you know, most people, to be honest, don't, unless they already have the skills to actually do a lot of the coding and the design work and the marketing themselves, it's rare to find one person who can do all three or four of those things. Right. Eventually, you're going to need to hire somebody else. And when you hire somebody else, you need money. And when you need money, you go to investors. So typically, you do go and find money elsewhere. The best investor you can have, of course, is friends, family and fools, the three Fs, go to your mum. Yeah. Go to your best friends, go to any idiots in the local neighborhood who are looking to burn <laughs> their cash and get some from them. But failing that, yes, absolutely. You can go to sort of external institutional investors. When you go to external or institutional investors, I can't emphasize this enough. You must remember that really what you're doing is selling a product. You're selling your company in exchange for money. And in that, it's no different to when Coca-Cola tries to sell you a can of Coke. What makes you buy a can of Coke? When you see a TV ad on TV, what makes you engage with that ad? What makes you as a, as a private, personal individual buy a product? You need to identify what makes you purchase other people's products, right. internalize that, and then figure out how to make other people buy your product, which in this case is your company. That's probably the advice that I would give. Um, in addition to that, though, there are three specific things that, in my experience of raising money, both for Campfire and for my airline and for other companies, there are three specific things that investors always care about. Number one, they care about mitigating people risk or team risk, as they sometimes call it. Number two, they care about mitigating market risk. And number three, they care about mitigating execution risk. And I'll go through them very quickly. Um, 
basically if you're a if you're an investor you, you want to you know give your money to somebody you want to make sure i mean hopefully you'll become facebook and you know the investor will make billions but they want to make sure they don't lose the money that they've just invested in you right so the first thing they look at is the team or the people that you have on board do you have a great team of people with past experience of doing what they're doing for you now who are likely to be able to deliver results in the future if so then you've mitigated your team risk which is great the investor will then look at the market risk well does the market you know does it look like there are customers out there who will buy the product or the service that you are devising or that you have devised you know um if you're selling jam like uh, is there a big market for jam out there in the world and how are you going to attack or not attack how are you going to sell jam to those people and how are you going to compete against the other jam manufacturers who are out there the third thing that investors always care about is execution risk and specifically um are there any proprietary um or or or, or technical things challenges barriers that you need to overcome in order to deliver your product or service to the market so for example if you are an app um you know is do you have the technology um to be able to build that app now apps are actually quite simple things behind the scenes so the answer to that question is probably yes but if you are for example um you know putting uh, there's a great company out there at the moment called skybox which is launching miniaturized satellites that can go up in space for less wow. than hundredth of the cost of you know a normal satellite that goes on the side of a rocket uh, but there's a lot of execution risk there because it's like well it's never been done before will it work like when we put uh, you know when we put one of these micro satellites up there into space will it actually function so those are the three things um people uh people risk market risk execution risk those are the three things that investors really care about what are your thoughts on crowdfunding uh, I've never done it before, but I, and I don't even, to be honest, I don't know how it works. I know that there are platforms out there, um, where people can do crowdfunding. And I, I think that's terrific. If, if the numbers look good and if you can raise the money without giving away too much control over your company, I think absolutely go for it. Yeah. So I want to kind of go back to, back to the airline experience. <laughs> sure. When you, you have mentioned, and that's why I wanted to circle back because I think it's important, your lessons in company culture at when you were developing like the, the first ever life flat experience meant when you were developing that and, and your engagement with teams and the company, I'd love to hear what you learned and what you can share with us. Sure. I think, um, first of all, at JetBlue. Uh, there is a lot of which is the the, the 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 company I was working when I developed or helped develop the Mint product. There's a great sense of camaraderie. So everybody is you really feel like you're kind of everybody's in it together. And although some people might be more senior and some people more junior, some people paid more money, some people less, etc. There's a great sense that actually we're all on the same side. We're all wor working towards the same common goal. Slackers are not tolerated. People who don't contribute to the, the wider team effort uh, are not, you know, they're just not, they're fired, basically. They got, got rid of. And even people in very senior positions, I mean, you should see the office of the CEO of JetBlue. It is, it's tiny. It was the same size. It was the same size as my office, actually, put it that way. Yeah. Everybody has the same size offices. Um, 
So you really have this sense like everybody, although, as I said, of course, some people are senior, some people are junior. You have this sort of sense of, of a flat hierarchy in which all hands are required to achieve um, a common result. Um, and added to that, you know, I think that, that JetBlue has a great um, sort of HR team, I suppose, a team of people who are out there committed to hiring only people who are committed to JetBlue's core values. JetBlue has a set of core values, which everybody is forced to memorize and recite. It's almost, um, it's almost uh, uh, like some kind of cult or something. Every Monday, you got to recite the, the, the company values, fun, passion, safety, etc. Um, so, you know, I, I just think that kind of institutionalization of, um, of, of top quality culture is what differentiates JetBlue, certainly from its other peers in the airline industry, um, as well as from, from other companies uh, sort of else, you know, in, in other, in other, in other sectors in other, in other industries. And I think, to be honest, a lot of this culture at JetBlue really does trickle down to the front line. If you're empowering people to make decisions and, and you as an individual realize that while you may be a small cog in a big machine, you're nevertheless an essential part of that machine, it affects you. It affects your mood when you're on the job. It affects the way that you behave towards customers and so on and so forth. And so I think, I'm very biased, but I think that some of the finest um, in-flight crew members in US skies are JetBlue crew members. And they're nicer, to be honest. They're more smiley. They're friendlier. They're more accommodating than their counterparts on some of the other airlines whose names I can't even bring myself to mention because I won't <laughs> black beam live on the air. <laughs> so yeah, I would I would say it's it's just very much about building that building a, a team of people who are committed to, to to the company's values, right, and empowering them to to make those decisions. So do you do you you have um do you have partners with Campfire? Uh, so when you say partners, do you, you mean people I work with? Or? Yes, yes, with a, that that you founded founded it with. Oh yes, absolutely. So I'm I'm merely one of two co-founders. I have a brilliant co-founder Nick, who actually has an even more exciting and extraordinary experience than me, <laughs> in that he um, he used to run a company in North Korea of all places. Um, so yeah, his his stories of of time in that country are absolutely fascinating. I, I have the privilege of working with some truly phenomenal people on this project. It's yeah, it's just incredible people. And how long did it take you to get to your first, you know, demo or alpha version of the app? Uh, I would say it probably took a, a month or two months, um, something like that. I, I can't remember the exact dates now. It was some sometime towards the end of last year, but it was a long process. You know, it was it was sort of six months of of work before we actually ended up getting into the app store. Yeah. And Apple, I, just between you and me, like Apple, my God, does this, I hope, does this podcast go out on Apple? Uh, they're probably going to censor this part out. It, but, <laughs> um, it does. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> we, we can edit it out. <laughs> they are, they're not the most helpful people when it comes to, um, to, they're not very responsive or very helpful with developers of apps, I would say. Yeah, so, the challenge. <laughs> it, it's, def it's definitely a challenge. I mean, all businesses have these challenges. When I was starting the airline, you know, the biggest challenge was uh, dealing with uh, three different Greek government ministries, as well as one of the regular, well, two of the regulators. Um, you know, and likewise, when you start an app, fine, you don't have any regulators, you don't have a government to deal with, but you have Apple. And to be honest, Apple now 
very much behaves like a government. Yeah. It controls everything that exists within its borders, really its ecosystem, its app store, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it and it, it 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 levies quite significant taxes on all the behavior that exists within its ecosystem. By the way, Google with its Play Store and Android is is not really that much better. Um, but I, I wish that the world, might, you know, I, I defend the, the right, of course, of Apple and Google to make money in this way. I'm a, I'm a capitalist, but I, I I wish the world at, at large was more alive to the somewhat. Again, you should edit this. You should check with your lawyers. <laughs> maybe edit that. But the somewhat anti-competitive um, uh, ways in which, in fact, it's not even. It's not even. I can say that it's, it's a free country, right? It, it's, it's anti behavior. It's, is anti yeah. So, um, you know, that concerns me for for the future. I, I, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but you look historically um, at companies like, for example, uh, Standard Oil. Uh, you know, the Rockefellers in the early part of the 20th century, which just literally got too big, um, too powerful, too monopolistic, and they ended up getting broken broken up by the government very controversially. Uh, but I wonder if that might happen to Apple or to Google, because they literally, between the two of them, and okay, if you add in Facebook as well, between the three of them, they basically control the entire internet. Oh, yeah. Which is, is dangerous, if you ask me, extremely dangerous. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. Um, one thing that I, that I really, really love about Campfire, by the way, is that, is the fact that people have, uh, the option to, they can either keep their earnings or they can donate it to their favorite charities. And I'd love to hear your experience on, I, I know, I know it's still in its infancy, but so far, how many users, what percentage do you see are either are actually putting it towards charities rather than keeping it themselves? I would say that I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but I would certainly say more than half, probably yeah. about 50 to 60 percent of um, of our users donate at least something to charity. You can donate anywhere from zero percent of your earnings all the way up to 100 percent of your earnings. Some people, you know, are donating 100%. Some people, it's you know, 50%. Some people, it's 25%. Um, but yeah, I would say, I'd say certainly, certainly a majority of our users are donating to charity. And we have a lot of pressure on us, actually, from our users to add more charities to the platform. So every time somebody wants to, for example, I don't know, donate to their kid's school I mentioned before, or to, um, you know, relief of of the victims of the mudslides in freetown sierra leone like that's something else that we have to add into the app usually takes us a couple of days to do it we're working flat out with a really small team um to add more charities but yeah we certainly have demand from more people to add more options as well that's that's so great so you know just like with the, the current recent hurricane disaster you could implement that in and within a couple of days people could direct their money that way Yes, absolutely. We, we found that the um, you know demand, but well, not demand. I should say that the desire of our users to donate to um, hurricane relief was so strong that actually we added um, uh, the ability to donate to the American Red Cross within uh, within a couple of hours. So I would say the majority of the people who are donating to charity through Campfire right now are donating to the American Red Cross in support of. Um, hurricanes, uh, relief of hurricanes, Harvey and and Irma. And also, don't forget, too, that there was a lot of devastation caused by Irma in the Caribbean. I was actually born in Jamaica, which fortunately was not 
touched um, by Irma. But there are a lot of people, you know, in the British Virgin Islands, in Anguilla, yeah. um, in 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 St. Martin, in Cuba, a lot of these places which which were hit even even worse than Florida, and where, where of course the infrastructure, um, the local infrastructure is less good than it is in Florida. Um, and so we are we're, we're making a, a deliberate effort to to make sure that some of the donations that we raise on the on the app are going towards the Caribbean islanders as well. Yes, that's I love that. Um, so there's there's a question for you. Um, one, actually, I'm, to- I'm totally going to sidetrack here. I noticed <laughs> that you I noticed that you recently got your your is it your master's or MBA at Stanford. I did. Yes, I, I got my master's at Stanford. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious because you know a lot of times people do that before all of the all of their launches and <laughs> journey in entrepreneurship. So what what made you decide to do that? Um, well, I could tell you the bullshit story, which I'll I'll, I'll maybe save the bullshit story for my autobiography. The truth, <laughs> is that, which I'm not writing, by the way, I'm not writing. Um, the truth is that I, you know. I was in an organization, um, this is when I was working in, in, in Africa, I was work, working for an organization, uh, and I realized that I had reached a sort of a glass ceiling. There was nobody above me apart from the founders of the company, and they were never going to give me equal terms. So I kind of felt like I was in a bit of a cul-de-sac and dead end, didn't really know where to go. And you know, I, business school seemed like a, a cool place to, to hang out for a couple of years. <clears throat> and, and you know maybe also broaden my horizons outside of the world of aviation, uh, and so that's exactly what I did. That's awesome. How how was that experience? Business school is truly humbling, wonderful. I mean, business schools differ, of course. <clears throat> also, I'm told I've only been to one, of course. Um, but Stanford was just—you go in there expecting wonderful things and and your expectations are just consistently exceeded not necessarily by the quality of the instruction or by the classes but certainly by the quality of your peers yeah you know i had some truly truly wonderful classmates who taught me things about themselves about me about the world um and those experiences was just irreplaceable i love it i think it's so great What's what are what's one of the most interesting questions to you that you've you've heard on Campfire? Um, people don't ask me questions. I'm not very popular on Campfire. I, like, I used to be in the top five because we have a leaderboard. <laughs> Nobody asks me questions anymore. Um, wow, gosh. All right. I what's what's say, the most? In- oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say I'll, I can tell you my favorite question. It just yeah, wasn't tell, asked. Yeah, tell, I was going to say it could have been asked to anybody. So we have a user on the platform who is the star of a really, really hugely popular YouTube comedy show Okay. called Smosh. I've never watched it, but it apparently it's very funny. Um, and, you know, she she's on there. She's answering questions. And it's very funny. Like, it's just hilarious responses to questions. Um, and one day somebody asked her a question. I'm, I'm horribly paraphrasing, but it was something like this. It was like, you know, Courtney... Uh, I know that when you were a teenager, you suffered from depression. Now, I'm a teenager and I'm suffering from depression. Um, What advice, if any, do you have for me? And she answered it in the space of, you know, a minute, which is that's the maximum length of of an audio response on Campfire. And 
it was just so unexpected. I think that was the reason why it moved me so much. I was expecting her to be laughing and joking and being the zany personality that she is on YouTube. Right. Um, but, you know, she she took it very seriously. She gave what I think was some, you know, extremely valuable and meaningful advice to this guy who was very sincerely asking her. Um, you know, and for a minute I sat there and just listened and, you know, I got shivers up my spine. It was it was a really moving and, and touching and, and personal um, response. Uh, and that was definitely my favorite answer that I've heard on the platform so far. But, you know, Summer, you could top it. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to your, your answers to the questions I'm going to be asking you this afternoon. Well, now I have a new mission. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is so cool. And I, I can't wait to dive in myself and, and use it. Um, I think it's just it, when you just think of the potential and, and how big this can get, it's like, wow. I would I would imagine itself will be on YouTube. I hope so. I mean, I'm not as funny or as beautiful as <laughs> talking about, but um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I have a face. I have a face for radio. I'm told, so it's, you know, I'll stick with the audio. I have um, one question that um, I was actually told to ask you, and I'm curious about your answer because I think it's a great question, and that is. How can Silicon Valley businesses materially improve people's lives worldwide? Wow, um, that's a great and broad question. I mean, I, I mentioned before that I think there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley who have the wherewithal, the power and the resources to you know, materially improve people's lives right the, way around, right the way around the world. I would ask them to get out of their offices um, to 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 stop considering exclusively Silicon Valley based investments or Silicon Valley based tech businesses, and go to Lagos, Nigeria, or go to Nairobi, Kenya, or go to Dhaka in Bangladesh, and and actually meet with entrepreneurs in those countries, in those places, who actually when you go there, you find they have amazing ideas, amazing products. Um, for example, something that Americans just don't know is that this whole movement of mobile money, Venmo and and like, you know, Apple Pay and all of these things, you use your mobile phone to make payments for people, right? Two people was all developed in Nairobi in Kenya. Um, there's a company there called M-Pesa yeah. that, that started this all off about 10 years ago. And by the way, in Kenya, it's way more sophisticated than it is here. You wouldn't expect that because no. people think they're like, oh, you know, it's a poor African country far more sophisticated than it is here. And you can do all sorts of things with mobile money. In fact, people don't really even carry cash or use credit cards in Kenya anymore because everything is just done with a swipe of the phone. You pay your bills, you pay your friends, you pay for Uber. Everything is done through your through your mobile phone. Oh, wow. Um, and so a lot of these ideas, that you, they begin in places that you wouldn't expect. I would just heartily encourage, uh, you know, the people at Sequoia, the people at Andreessen Horowitz, um, you know, people at these big uh, uh, um, uh, venture capital companies to, as I say, get down from their ivory towers and, and go to parts of the world where people are making a real difference and where, in fact, the benefits of some of these innovations are considerably more profound. Now, you know, if you introduce mobile money, sort of an Apple Pay system in America. That's cool. I mean, like, this, I can I don't have to get my credit card out now. I can touch my phone to the to the point of sale machine great 
But if you introduce mobile money in a place like Nairobi, where nobody has bank accounts and, and cash is king, you now suddenly have all sorts of knock-on effects. You get rid of the cash economy. So the black market basically disappears. The government can actually collect taxes and in turn reward its public servants and pay people. Um, you have ways for people to transact across long distances. If I want to now buy an, an apple or something from the other side of the country, somebody can ship that apple to me and I can pay for it electronically. Whereas previously I couldn't, you know, I couldn't send cash in, a, in an envelope because it would just get stolen. So now instead of only buying apples from my immediate, you know, one mile radius of where I live, now I can buy apples anywhere in the whole country. So the prices of apples comes down. There are all of these knock on benefits that you just don't really think of when you immediately think, oh, Apple Pay, I'm, I'm going to buy my exactly. iPod with this touchscreen technology, you know. So I would really encourage um, yeah, the people of Silicon Valley to consider all of these things and to just get out there. The world is a huge place and it, it doesn't end, you know, in 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 san jose in 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 california love it well this has been incredible um i would love for our listeners to be able to find campfire what's the the best way i know there's there's a few different campfires on um on ios so let us know the best way to find that for a few imposters yes (laughs) uh, you can you can download campfire in two ways you can either um, go to the App Store and search for Campfire and just look for the little orange microphone. You can't miss it. Okay. Uh, or alternatively, to be really sure, just on your iPhone, go to get.campfire.fm, um, and that will automatically direct you to download the app. It's get.campfire.fm. Um, yeah, and I will see you there. Of course, I will be, if you want to, if anybody wants to ask me any questions, I'm, of course, on the app as Christos Shepard. You can search me, ask me questions. I will respond, um, you know, entrepreneurship, starting airlines, uh, Silicon Valley, getting into Stanford Business School, writing for The Economist, any of these things I'm delighted to talk about. with Having uh, a with, TV show uh, in China. Having a TV show <laughs> in China, yes. Um, and Summer, I will be asking you questions as well this afternoon, as I said, on the Campfire app. So people should come in and, and check out your answers. Absolutely. I love it. It's going to be fun. Well, thank you so much, Christos. This was awesome. This is so I'm so excited for you. Um, this is going to be an incredible journey, and I'm excited to be following it. Thank you so much, Summer. You're part of the story now. So welcome to the Campfire. Ah, Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's Get Genius. You can learn more about The Draw Shop at www.thedrawshop.com, on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Your home for kick-butt custom whiteboard marketing videos. Your ideas come to life. Thanks for listening. Please share, comment, and make any suggestions for future genius guests.